We're in a new series. It's a four-part series. Let me walk you through what's going to take place over the next couple of months. Uh, We're in a series right now called Why. That series really has to do with why we do what we do here at King's Chapel. So what we want to do is we want to take a four-part series and deal with four things that we do on a regular basis and why we do what we do here as we gather together in corporate worship. Our first sermon today will be on why the Word of God takes prominence in our corporate gathering. What ministry of the Word. We're also going to deal with today, hopefully I'll get to it, uh, why we have membership in the church. Why, why do we encourage and why do we uh, have and encourage membership in the church? My, my, my goal is not to manipulate you to become a member of the church. That is, not, that is not what I want. But I do want to challenge you this morning, according to Scripture, on what you believe membership in the church really is and what you've been taught. I want to look at Scripture. The following week, we're going to look at why we do discipleship here, why we gather in community groups, why does our mission statement talk about we exist to glorify God by living on mission, how we believe that we are sent into the world. We're going to talk about that next week. In the third week on the four-part series, Pastor Ricky, you won't want to miss this, he's the music and arts pastor as well as the youth pastor, uh, he's going to talk about what's the role of music. You love to sing, I love to sing. Well, what is, that, what is that role as we gather together in corporate worship, the role of music? And then on September 10th, which is the fourth Sunday of the series, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. As we gather together for the Lord's Supper, why do we do that? What does it mean? Also, we believe here at King's Chapel that the Scriptures teach believers' baptism. Matthew 28, other passage of scriptures, there's believing in profession, then baptism, full immersion, baptism. Right under here, there's a tank, believe it or not. These, these panels come up. So if you've never been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, or you were baptized as a child without any real profession, and now you've made a profession of faith, we believe that the scripture says, believe and be baptized. See me after the service. We can get you, I can get you to book, I can get you uh, to, to uh, sit down and talk to me about baptism. So if you're a follower of Christ, you've never been baptized as a believer, grab me after the service. Somebody already talked to me earlier, and um, we'll do that. So that'll take us into September. And then what we're going to do is study the book of Jude together. Jude is the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. And it's a short little book. We're going to do about four or five weeks on that. In fact, Jude uh, chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 4. It says this in that epistle. Beloved, Jude writes, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary, he writes, to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we're going to look at that contending for the faith that Jude writes, and that's going to take us into the fall where we're going to do a five-part series on the solas. Sola means alone in Latin. It is the cry of the Reformation. There are five solas that we're going to look at. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, Fide, Christ, Christos, all the different solas. We're going to do five-week study on that. And why we're doing that is because this October 31st, is the 500th year anniversary, 500 year anniversary, where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg Castle Church door and sparked the Reformation, the reclaiming of the gospel. So we're going we're gonna to study the five solas. That'll take us to Advent, November. I don't really want to talk about November. It's still nice out. In November, we're going to turn our attention to the birth of Christ. We'll probably launch into an, a book, maybe in the Old Testament. Uh, pray for the pastoral team as we try to, to figure out exactly what book we'll be studying next. But today, today is the preeminence of the word. 
in our corporate gathering, ministry of the word, and membership of the church. Why do we do that? Okay? So my first scripture lesson is going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'll get to Ephesians later, but I want to start out with this. Because we're going to look at ministry of the word first and membership of the family. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God, that's binding, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, he's judge, living and the dead, his kingdom come. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. No matter what's going on, be prepared. Reprove, which means expose, rebuke, and exhort in the scripture with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the listening to the truth, preaching of the word, the truth, and wander off into myths. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Ministry of the word, membership of a family. Three things as we deal with ministry of the word. Revelation, renewal, resemblance. You know, King's Chapel here, uh, we helped plant the church, but then we went, back, uh, we went back up, Perry Jones and a few other family went back up to, well, Perry stayed, but it went back up to the Westlow Church, and, and then we came back down, and Ed Marcel was the founding pastor, then, then um, um, Phil Taylor, and then I came on as the lead teaching pastor as well. All the while, King's Chapel has always been a church that takes the preaching of God's word seriously. The command of the Apostle Paul to young Timothy has no cultural bounds. In fact, the preaching of God's word goes way back into the Old Testament. We studied the book of Nehemiah together several years ago. And when the walls were completed, that's what the Nehemiah is about, the walls of Jerusalem were completed. Ezra, the priest who had the scriptures, who was given the instructions to teach the scriptures, he stood on this high platform, then he opened his Bible, or the scroll, He blessed the Lord, it says, blessed the Lord, the great God, and the people said, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground, okay? Ezra, high platform, opens up the scroll, the Old Testament in that day, opens up the scroll, they say, amen, amen, they bow their head, and they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Why? Well, they were aware that when Ezra opened up the scroll and Ezra was reading the scriptures, God was going to speak. That's why it says they worship the Lord. So in order to understand why the word of God is preeminent in our gathering as we gather Sunday morning, you need to understand something of the meaning of worship. The essence of worship is our response to God's holiness and his glory that was due him, that is due him, because of his radically otherness and his greatness and his beauty and his infinite value and worth. As God declares himself, we respond in worship. And the preaching of the word of God is absolutely essential because it is God's ordained way. He reveals himself to us so The word of God brings a right revelation of God and we respond to who God 
has declared himself to be. Now, when I use the word revelation, some of you think in the book of Revelation. What I mean by that, although the book of Revelation is the unveiling of God, is that God reveals himself, God shows himself to us through the scripture, through the written word of God. You and I, now listen carefully, you and I could never, never, ever know who God is unless God has revealed himself to us. God needs to reveal himself to us so that we can know him. If he had not revealed himself and you're doing it yourself, all you have is an idol. You're making God out to be your own mind, your own imagination, and your own thoughts. But because God has revealed himself to us, we can know him. And God has revealed himself through the word, has made himself known. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God ordained to speak to us and reveal himself to us and interpret deeds in history by breathing out his word to us. 2 Peter 1, again, no prophecy, Peter writes, has ever been made by an act of human will. But men moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It's not only the inspired word of God, it's the exhaled word of God. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are God's revelation of himself to us. Pastor, theologian John Piper writes this. If worship is meant to be a spiritual communion with God and a reverent, loving response to God, then at the heart of worship must be the revelation of God himself and he has ordained to be known mainly by his word, end quote. Therefore, it is right to say that if the word of God does not drive worship, then true worship cannot and will not happen. That's why we do it here. That's why there are scripture references between songs. Preaching and teaching of the word of God is a critical role in the life of the church. It is directly correlated with correct and appropriate worship and communion with God. You have watered down preaching. You don't have the word of God being preached. You have watered down people and a watered down ministry. But strong preaching, understanding scripture, you'll have a strong ministry, a strong people in a church. But Jesus made it clear, as believers, we need to... Be in the word. It is written, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we study scripture, we memorize scripture, not to say, hey, look how many verses I know. Or maybe some of you older folks remember the sword drills. Find this, find that, right? No, we do it because it is the way in which we have true knowledge and communion with our God. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 1830, this God, this way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We gather together and the word of God takes preeminence, preeminence because it is, it is the central act of worship. John Calvin writes this. Where the word is not preached and heard, there is no church. Martin Luther writes, the highest worship of God is the preaching of his word. Listen, we honor the Lord. We are reverent before God. 
when we gather together and listen reverently to his word, and when our hearts are open, our minds are open to what God wants to say to us through the scripture. It's a supreme act of worship. Remember what it said in John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, right? And the word was God. It doesn't say in the beginning was a song. It says in the beginning was the word. God identifies his son who himself is God as the word. And the son of God is the word of God. And even though God revealed, revealed himself through nature, through history, uh, through, perfectly through scripture, Jesus Christ is the final and full communication of God to man. We did a series, 72 sermons in the book of John. We called it the invisible made visible. He's the word who became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. And not only is it the revelation of God, not only is it so that we can know who God is and that we can worship him in, in, in truth, but it's also a matter of renewal, number two. First Peter 1, let, let me get to that. First, in First Peter, Peter writes this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How does that happen? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass and all glory, and all its glory like the flower of the grass The grass withers and the flower falls. In other words, things will grow and things will fall. He says, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, it's the gospel that was preached to you. Do you see? God has provided a way for us to be born again, have a renewal of our hearts by the imperishable seed, by the living and abiding word of God. God causes us to be born again, become his children by the seed, by the word of the seed, as a father would procreate in his family and have children. And the word of God is the means God uses to awaken new life by the, by the spirit through the word. We just sang about that a minute ago. In November of 1515, speaking of Martin Luther, at this time he was an Augustinian monk, He was a professor at the University of Wittenberg. He began to read the book of Romans. He began to expound and teach on the book of Romans to his students. He was a professor. The more he studied the book of Romans, this epistle, the more he recognized that Paul, the writer and the author of Romans, he was writing about the doctrine of being justified by faith. means being made right. It means being forgiven and having imputed righteousness, being made right with God. And he began to read about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that it was, he says, central and crucial to everything in the book. You have to get that right in order to understand Romans. But Martin Luther found himself struggling to understand it because it went against everything he's been taught and the things in which he thought of. He describes this struggle through Romans and his his dramatic conversion when the word of God finally... (laughs) reached his heart and his soul and his mind when the word of God showed him the truth. This is what he writes. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until... 
I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God has filled me with hate because he felt God wanted to get him, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage, this passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven, end quote. So he saw the righteousness of God, although God is righteous, punishing sin. He didn't see that the righteousness of God has been imputed to us through the righteousness of Christ by faith. And the Holy Spirit took the word of God and implanted that seed. And he says, I was reborn. Now the word of God is the means. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is involved. The Holy Spirit will take the word of God and regenerate the heart. That's what he's saying. And since God's word is his vocalized breath, it goes forth with the power of his spirit. So let me make something straight to you this morning. Let me say it straight out and being honest with you. The word of God is preeminent and prominent in our worship service so we can know God. But it is also preached so that you will repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to escape damnation. We want you to run to Jesus for salvation. We want you to have your sins forgiven by Jesus. We want you to recognize as the preaching of the word goes out that you are a sinner before God and that Jesus on the cross paid the debt in which you owe. He died in your place. He died and took the wrath that you deserve so that you can have reconciliation and forgiveness with God. The Holy Spirit does not give us new birth and strengthen our faith apart from the preaching of the word of God. You know Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There's no other way. And what you see in the New Testament and in, in all of Scripture, especially though in the New Testament, what I'll talk about is after the church was born, is God's people just gathering around the word of God. Acts chapter 2, brand new, the Holy Spirit come on the day of Pentecost, and you see the, the, the apostles teaching, and everyone devoted to the teaching of the apostles. And lastly, if revelation, renewal, and resemblance. One of the things you will find if you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, those are what's called the pastoral epistles. The reason they're called pastoral epistles is because pastor church planting apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and to Titus who were young pastors. In fact, 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote before he died. If you read that from like a grandfatherly kind of elderly man writing to young Timothy, it takes on a kind of a, a beautiful picture. But he writes to Timothy and he writes to Titus. And when you read those books together, this pastoral encouragement to these young men, what you find is that when he talks about Scripture, he talks about how the Scriptures are to teach God's Word and to teach God's people and to shape and to mold and to uphold and to nourish believers and the work of the church and the work of the church. It is the way in which God takes and uh, works in our lives so that we become what? More like Jesus, right? That's, that's, that's sanctification, Christ-likeness. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, right? Christ-likeness is done by the Spirit through the word of God. And when you read your Bible and your eyes are opened by the Spirit, he wants to point us to Christ, to behold his beauty, to behold his majesty and glory. Our aim is to see the glory of the Son and to be conformed into that image,
That's sanctification, Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Family, if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit is working in your life. It is for the purpose of being conformed to the image of Christ. To live as Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit, living on mission, declaring and demonstrating the good news of the gospel. Becoming, we just did a series on, on the fruit of the Spirit. All those things points us to looking like Jesus more and more. Now, in, in 1 Thessalonians, I love this passage. Paul writes to the Thessalonica church. And he writes to them in a letter. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says something very interesting. He says, we thank God consistently. We also thank God consistently for this. What are you thanking God for? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Then he writes, which is at work in you believers. The work of the spirit, the work of the, of, of the scripture in the believers. We gather around the word is the way God reveals himself it's the way in which we become renewed and rebirthed. It's the way in which we resemble Christ. Now, just a couple of practical things. What we do here at King's Chapel is we do what's called expository preaching. We go through books of the Bible. Expository preaching doesn't mean simply going through books of the Bible because people go through books of the Bible, they'll preach through books, and what they'll do is they'll take out a sentence and then they'll just launch into some topic from that sentence. That's not expository preaching. Expository preaching, which has been around a long, long time, we're not the only ones that do it, is going to the text and trying to figure out what was the original writer, the original narrative in that, in that um, Middle Eastern book, that ancient book, what was being said and communicated in that culture in that day. Once you figure that out, then you could draw principles for living when you have in place what God was trying to say in that day. What happens in our day, and you know this, people will go to the Bible, rather than exegete, draw out the meaning, they exegete, drain the meaning, and they're like this. I really need a new Mercedes Benz. Yeah, oh, bind together in threefold, send me, you know, and all of a sudden they're starting to go off on some tangent. They want your money. It has nothing to do with context whatsoever. They're taking their topic and they run into the Bible. We want to do the opposite. We want the Bible to speak. We want to find out what God is saying. And we can clearly hear God's voice when the Bible speaks as it's supposed to speak through communicating the original intent first. David Helm writes this about expository preaching. He says, expository preaching is powered preaching that rightly submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of the biblical text. It brings out the text it brings out of the text what the Holy Spirit put in there. It's explaining the text in its cultural context first, then bringing relevance to it. Does that make sense to you? I hope so. In Nehemiah, I mentioned Nehemiah 8, with Ezra reading the, the scroll. It says in Nehemiah 8, 8, that after Nehemiah read it, a bunch of other scribes and, and, and Bible thumpers um, Gave, went out and started meeting with families and it says God, um, the, they read the book of the law, the law of God clearly and they gave the sense to what was written. That's exposition. They, they exposited, they drew out the meaning of the text so that the people understood the reading. That's what we like to do here. Read the scripture, explain the scripture, then apply the scripture. We, family, it helps keep the main thing the main thing. 
It helps, it helps me as a preacher or anyone else that's here proclaiming the word of God. It helps us to keep what God is trying to say and that God can speak. It brings confidence. One thing about expository preaching, it brings confidence because we know what God is saying. We understand the culture. We, we get to the words and figure out in that culture what God said. Then we could take it. It, it has confidence in preaching. The other thing it does, if you're not used to expository preaching, it's a little bit longer. It's the way it is. Uh, but it makes the congregation grow. It makes me grow as a preacher and other preachers in the congregation, other pastors here. And I'll tell you why. Because when you do expository and all of a sudden you come across the verse that's like, uh, wow, I don't, I don't really want to talk about that. Um, let's go somewhere else. Can't do that. When you preach through a book, you're in chapter 3, verse 4. You end, you, you pick up the next day, chapter 3, verse 5. And then you've got to deal with hard subjects. You've got to deal with the scripture. You can't run around and pick what you want. You can't, it's not a club that you're beating people up. You're doing expository preaching. You're going through books of the Bible. You're dealing with hard stuff. We do that here. We're not afraid of the scripture. We let the scripture speak. We're not afraid. We're going to let it speak. And another thing it does is it teaches the congregation. I hope if you've been here any amount of time, when you read scripture, you're thinking context first. You know, who's this written to? Where is it written from? What, what's history going on in Israel at the time? You know, you know, you read the book of Haggai, let's just say, and it talks about these panel houses and all that stuff. You're like, well, what was that? Well, it's because when they went back to build the wall, they, they were like, oh, yeah, let's get the wall built. And all of a sudden, they're like, ah, forget it. And God raised up Haggai, and that, that's the context. You've got to know that stuff. So we take a little time, but we like to do expository preaching. Secondly, about Scripture, and then we'll move on. We don't do this to entertain you. Some people say, oh, the show on Sunday. This is not a show. It's not entertainment. I'm not trying to feed your ego or stimulate your emotions. We're not the seeker-sensitive church. We're what Keller calls seeker-sensible. We want to make sense if you're new here. You don't know the Scripture. We want to teach you the Scripture. We believe in faithfully explaining the text, considering its genre, historical settings, looking for ways to bring it into relevant application, right? There's only one meaning, lots of application, but what does the text say? How has God spoken? And then we, pastors included, submit to God. And then as the word of God is being preached, God is forming, God is forming and building a family, God is forming and building a family, and that's what membership in the church is all about, a family. So let's talk about that, membership in the church. I'm going to put a definition up there, but we'll get to that in a minute. You know, our culture, you have no option. I hate to tell you this, because I'm the same as you. Our culture, we have been raised in an individualistic culture, a democratic way of thinking that one man, one vote, right? Right? And then we bring it into God's kingdom or God's rulership over the church. And we're like, I got to vote. And Jesus is like, no, you don't. Everybody feels like, you know what? Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me what I should know. Don't tell me what I should do. Don't, well, who are you up there to, to tell me anything about what God is saying? All right? We're, we're not in the business of forcing you to believe. But brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're united to him, our submission is to King Jesus and his word. Even in a free society, there's an element of authority. There's no such thing as freedom without some degree of authority. And the, the authority and the unique authority of the word of God and the preaching of the word is not found in me or some charismatic personality. The authority of preaching stands in the authoritative word of God. And the task of the preaching and the revealing of God is to let God speak and have his authority speak to us. 
And I think we need to understand, when we talk about membership, we talk about submission to the church, we talk about membership to the church, it's really ultimately about belonging to and submitting to King Jesus, who's the chief shepherd and the senior pastor and the head of the church. And whenever, you get, you know, what happens is we have this false understanding of what membership really is. Whenever I teach on tithing or giving financially, I deal with the structure, the foundation first. Before we even talk about finance, because people hear finance like, oh, here we go. Uh, tithing and giving of the church, tithing is 10%, or giving of the church in any way, shape, or form. The church is asking me to give some of my money to God, some of my money to the church. Uh, here we go again. That's faulty. We're not asking you to give some of your money to the church. The shoes you wear, the air you breathe don't belong to you to begin with. Everything you have, the, you woke up this morning, you can thank God for that. God's not asking you to give your money, your time, your talents. God is saying, I'm giving it to you on loan. I expect 10% of it back or whatever percentage. We don't have to get into that. You keep the other 90% that still belongs to me. That changes everything. Same thing with membership in the church. Same thing with memberships in the church. We think that becoming a member or a part of the family of God is optional. You know, you're a part of the membership. You're not part of the membership. It's not really that important. It's, it's, just, an, it's just another membership local thing that we, um, we're involved in. We put another, you know, hat, ring another hat, uh, peg on a hat or something. You know what I mean? Ephesians chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The the Jews had the covenant. The Gentiles were far off. But now we've been brought together. For Jesus himself is our peace. He has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay? By abolishing the law of commandments. You can't get to Christ through through obedience because you'll fail. But he, Jesus, created himself one new man in place of the two. He made peace, right? There was no peace with God. We're unreconciled because of sin. Jesus dies and makes peace. We're now reconciled. He says, how? Through the cross. And he came, Jesus, preached to you who were once far off, peace, and peace to those who are near. Now listen to what Ephesians 2 says. For through him we have access, through Jesus, we have access to one spirit, to the Father. So then you are, the church of God, you are no longer strangers, aliens from from the family of God. But now you are fellow citizens, saints, members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that's the scripture, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, does that sound like it's optional? It doesn't to me. Members, uh, uh, structure, joined together, growing in the holy, in the, uh, holy temple in the Lord. You know, the Bible uses metaphors, many metaphors, to talk about the church. It talks about being a body, a flock, a sheep, a flock of sheep, branches, the divine, a bride, a temple, God's building, a family, exiles, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, salt of the earth, on and on. And each one teaches something about the body of Christ. If you're a contractor, you like when it talks about the, bo- the building, we're the building of God. 
I could do that. I build all day long. I understand how buildings come together. Me, I like the family. I also like the Godfather, but that's another story. I like the family. It's a shared identity. It's an intimacy that's there. The body talks about how we need to be the foot and the hand, and we're serving one another. The temple talks about the dwelling of God, that we are the temple of God and where the Holy Spirit dwells. The vine and the branch talks about our uh, dependency upon the living Christ and his word. You see, each metaphor teaches us something about the body of Christ. There's union. We could talk about marriage. And there is union to talk about brick upon brick in 1 Peter. It's a wonderful picture of the church. In fact, to say membership in a church almost doesn't even do that justice. Here's my definition. Actually, it's not mine. I stole it. I got most of it, I think, from a book called Doctrine. Um, Mark Driscoll and and Brashears wrote a book. I changed a few wording, but this is a great... I know it's long. Everything about me is long. There it is. The local church is a community of regenerated believers. You've got to be born again into the kingdom. Under the headship of Christ, the authority of Scripture. Who has the final authority? Jesus, His Word. Who believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We gather together, organized under qualified biblical leadership, gather regularly for preaching, teaching, and worship. We observe the biblical ordinance of baptism and communion. We give our finances, time, and abilities. We're unified by the Spirit, disciplined for holiness, and then we scatter. That's our mission. The Great Commission has missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. When it talks about missionaries, it's not talking about foreign lands only. It's both local and global. Again, there's a lot there. When the Bible talks about the church, the ecclesia of God, the called out assembly of God, 85% of the time I've read, anywhere from between 80 and 90% of the time, it's speaking about a local gathering of people. Only a couple of times in the New Testament when it talks about the ecclesia, it's the universal church. Because there is, there is a, in a sense, a church of every believer from every nation, time, uh, tongue, and tribe. But mostly, 85% speaking of a local gathering. Because where does the universal church meet? Can anybody tell me I want to go join them on Sunday? What songs do they sing? What book are they preaching through, right? So there's local gatherings. And in the New Testament, you will find that as Paul is planting churches, there are gatherings of people, local people, living and loving each other and are committed to Christ and committed to each other. So I will say this, being part of a church body is really not up for debate. Believers who are not connected to a local gathering, a local body of Christ, a local church, is completely foreign to the New Testament. Completely foreign to scriptures. Every single believer in the New Testament is connected to some local gathering. It's not an option. If you think it is, you're not being biblical. There's nowhere in scripture. In fact, if you don't want to be connected to any local body and you call yourself a Christian, that's rebellion. We're commanded to gather together, as this says, to teach, to preach, discipline, scattered into the world. And that doesn't mean mom and dad and grandpa and a Bible story. Okay, that's not what that means. Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting, not neglecting, to meet together as the habit of some. He's dealing with that in that day. But encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
We are to continue caring for each other, meeting for worship, fellowship, mutual encouragement. Now, I recognize that the Bible does not directly address the concept of formal church membership. I know I hear that today all the time. Not what we're talking about. Not, not in most churches, there's classes, there's signing on a dotted line. But I'll tell you something in the New Testament. What you will find in the New Testament is a clear, discernible group in ways in which they are discernible as a people of God. I got a bunch of verses up there for you, especially in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message, whoever they were, were baptized. They were baptized. 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2, 47. And the Lord added to them, day by day, those who were being saved. So, the message was received. You got to be born again. You got to trust Christ. You want to be part of the church. I get that. But look at the numbers. 3,000 people were added. Somebody was keeping record, some numerical record of someone uh, within the church at that time. There are so many places in the New Testament that talk about a definable, um, discernible group. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. The church in Jerusalem is told to hold elections. The, 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 the preaching of the word was consuming the pastors of the church. And they said, you know what? We can't keep doing this. We've got to minister the word. Uh, women were not being served properly. Choose seven men from among you. From among you. That definable group. Choose seven men from that group. Not among them. Not among them, but among you. Acts eleven twenty six. Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Acts 12, 1. Herod arrested some who belonged to the Church, Acts 14, 27, they gathered the church together. A discernible, clear mark of who's in and who's out. In Acts 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul, he's on a missionary journey. He's coming back to Antioch. He's giving testimony of what God has been doing. And in Acts chapter 14, he comes to Antioch and he is giving his, 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 he's telling them what's been going on and it says that he gathered the church together. They all gathered together at a certain time in a certain place to hear the report from Paul. And they found out, Paul found out that somebody was teaching heresy saying you needed to do the law, circumcision particularly, in order to be saved. So the church gathered and appointed Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to get this straightened out. And you know what? When they got to Jerusalem, what'd they do? They go down to the local club and hang out? No, they call the church together. They call the church together. The whole church, it says. And Paul and Barnabas and, and Acts 15, they, they, they come up with a decision about salvation. And then what does it do? The congregation gathers together and sends people. I mean, you see all this going on in the New Testament. Over and over, this, this distinguished, discernible group. And as God has planted churches through the Apostle Paul, people are, are coming together under Christ, under Scripture, qualified leaders, uh, regularly serving, caring, worshiping, preaching. All this is going on. Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about that, and they're on mission, man. They're declaring and demonstrating the gospel. One thing is perfectly clear in the New Testament. You can't argue. To be a Christian is to belong to the church. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, and then to wander off by yourself doing your own thing is not in Scripture. It is foreign to Scripture. People repent, believe, are baptized, are involved in a local church. They've accepted Christ, and now they're part of Christ's body. It's instinctive, like being adopted into a large family. If you're a single person, you're adopted into a large family, next thing you know, you're sitting around a table with 35 people. Like, wow, where'd that come from? 
You've been adopted. When you think church, don't think club. Don't think rotary club or gun and rod club. Something that you want to add on. Jesus is king, reigning ruler, sovereign God, and has his people here on earth. You're part of that. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Just like Romans 13, God establishes the government to oversee our, 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 our nation. It's the highest authority uh, when it comes to our citizenship here. And God has established the church as the highest authority on earth when it comes to your discipleship and your citizenship in Christ's present and coming promised kingdom. Therefore, to say, ah, it's just another volunteer, just, it, it belittles the Christ who died for you. It's foreign to Scripture. The Bible says that we are slaves to Christ. We are bound to one another. Remember, king, he's the king. He reigns and rules. So there's a book called Church Membership. It's a great book. Uh, He says this, uh, Jonathan Lehman and Michael Horton. When you open your Bible, stop looking for signs of a club with its voluntary members. Look instead for a Lord and his bound together people. I like that. He also in his book, and I, I've never heard this before, I've got to be honest. He says the church is like an embassy. He used the metaphor, an embassy. He says like an embassy is an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. He says the church is not the kingdom, it's the outpost or embassy of that kingdom, end quote. I like that analogy. Because when you're in a foreign land and something happens and you have, to, you have to get your passport renewed or something's going on, you go to the embassy of your nation. Family, let me tell you, we are not citizens here. We are not citizens here. I'm all about, you know, the, uh, I'm a patriotic guy. I get that. But we are passing through. This is not our land. Our land is a new kingdom, a new healed earth, when King Jesus comes with his people and, and, and reigns and rules for all eternity in righteousness. We're looking forward to that day. We are here as an embassy, and Jesus Christ reigns that nation and rules that kingdom. This is not our place. We're strangers, we're aliens, we're looking forward to the day when Revelation says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Revelation 11. When every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. And the place on earth now where, where kingdom citizens find official recognition and refuge is the local church. The churches represents Christ's rule. They affirm and protect its citizens now and proclaim his will through the preaching of his word. They bow down to King Jesus. They worship King Jesus. They call people to come and worship Christ. We're, we're an everyday embassy. Now in the present, that represents and declares the future coming kingdom of Christ. A member is someone who is formally recognized as a Christian and part of the Christian Christ universal body. I know that not every church gets it right, but we're the embassy. We're the embassy. Our job is to identify and affirm those who belong to the kingdom and those who do not. Pastor, uh, uh, theologian Mark Dever, great pastor. Membership in a local church, he writes, is not an antiquated, antiquated, outdated, unnecessary add-on to true membership in the universal body of Christ. Membership in a local church is intended to be a testimony to our membership in the universal church, end quote. 
When I was a deacon in another church, our job was to listen to the testimonies of people and to see whether or not, because you want saved membership, you want people who love Jesus, understand the gospel, been born again, as John 3 tells us. And I was a deacon, and we had this sweet, sweet lady. She must have been in the late 70s, early 80s. And we sat with them. We said, just tell us about the gospel. Just tell us about salvation. Tell us about Jesus. Well, you know, I give a lot of money to the church. I come here every day I can. I'm really trying to write, do the right thing, and, and someday God will accept me because of how good I am. Some of you may believe that. You're not that good. And I looked at her and I thought, oh my word. Forget membership into the local church. You need to be in in the church. And I began to share the gospel with her. That you're a filthy, wicked, sinner deserving hell. But God loves you so much, cares for you so much, pursues you so much. And desires you so much that he sent Jesus as a sacrifice for you and a substitute for you. We didn't let her in the church. She doesn't even understand salvation. We don't want to be harsh and mean and stupid, and, and, but, but we want to be honest. Hell is a long time. Hot. Not a place you want to go. Jesus came fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He said, the time's fulfilled in the kingdom of God's hand. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Jesus died for you, rose for you, and then make disciples and baptize. The church has been given the keys to the kingdom making entrance to God's kingdom available or unavailable to people through the preaching and ministry of the gospel. They have the authority to discipline and remove its members. Do they always get it right? No. Does it change your, can the church change the status of a believer? Absolutely not. No church can say you're saved and unsaved in a definitive sense, but they can't say you don't understand the gospel. We've been given the keys. This is the truth of the gospel. Respond. You don't always get it right. I, I get that. But it doesn't mean that the authority of the church has just been uh, thwarted because we don't get it right every time. What parent gets it right all the time? Don't raise your hand because you'd be lying. The local church will be imperfect representatives of Christ, but the fact that it makes mistakes just as parents do does not mean it's without an authoritative mandate. To formally join the church is to have the overseers hear your confession, be sure that you understand the gospel to the best of your ability and that you really have trusted Christ and have been born again by the Spirit of God. We are all, the church is for all of us to be responsible and accountable to one another for spiritual growth, for discipline, financial accountability, and in some ways for the direction of the church. Can you imagine, uh, can you imagine... Holding elections, I hate to use this analogy, but I'm going to anyway. Can you imagine? No, I better not, actually. I'm thinking about it. Can, can I say something without all the political crap, uh, nonsense, excuse me? Can you imagine holding an election for Germany in France? I know, it's a li- I, know I, I really mean nothing politically by this. Why would the church give people the right the ability to choose a lead pastor, to choose elders, to choose deacons, to choose major direction of the church. If we don't even know you're a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. Okay, that's what everybody says. Why would we do that? It'd be crazy to do that. It, it, it would be totally crazy if you have not, and we have not seen that you are his. Now, let me close with this. I hear it all the time. I hear this all the time. Well, you know, you have classes you have to do, and, and we have to sign up on a covenant membership. They didn't have people signing in the, in the first century, uh, signing some sort of agreement. Okay. Yeah, they, they had more of a handshake. 
kind of thing. Maybe they had a verbal confession. They agreed they were bound together. Actually, if you really want to go farther back, when you said, I'm a Christian in the first century, you were fed to lions. You had your head chopped off. Your family hated you. You had to go underground to worship. And all those things took place. So if we go back to that day where a handshake really matters and people say you're Christian are really Christians, then maybe we don't need sign on a dotted line. But we're not in that day anymore. Everyone says they're a Christian. Not everybody truly understands what it means to be born again and to have and to walk with Jesus Christ. So if that day ever comes where a handshake is bond, where my profession matters, where me standing up and saying I belong to Jesus, I've got to watch because I've got a bullet coming to my head, Nowadays, it's just not that day anymore. So the pastor elders of the church do their diligent job and say, this is who we are. This is what we're about. Come and covenant with us. It's our covenant with you. It's your covenant with us together. One should choose a local body carefully and wisely, no doubt about it. And you know what? There's some good reasons to leave a church. False teaching, no mission, severe separatism, unethical leadership, unaddressed sin. I I get that. I I get that. There are right and good reasons to leave. And some of you have been hurt and, and, and you need healing. I get that too. But don't let it stop you from enjoying the sweet fellowship and the covenant membership together. As I said, membership doesn't even raise up to the level of being in the temple of God, being in the family of God, being the sheep of God, being the building upon building, brick upon brick in the building of God. Membership is, is, is even below that, I think, in so many ways. So let me read one more quote, and then we'll sing. Mark Dever again. Joining a church, now listen, increases our sense of ownership of the work of the church, of its community, of its budget, and its goals. We move from being pampered consumers to becoming joyous proprietors. We stop arriving late and complaining that we don't get exactly what we want. Instead, we arrive early and try to help others with what they need. We must begin to view membership less as a loose affiliation, useful only on occasion, and more, and look at it more as a regular responsibility becoming involved in one another's lives, one another's lives for the purpose of the gospel. So let me challenge you this morning. Hear the word being preached. Open your heart to the word of God. See what God is saying to you and respond in a way that brings him glory. Rely upon the Holy Spirit. Read the scriptures yourself daily. Communion with God. And when it comes to membership of the church, are you being influenced by the culture or by the scriptures? Could it be that you have not understand that the scriptures say about being bound together as brothers and sisters in union with another, with one another, brick upon brick, the bride of Christ, a dwelling place to God? Or are you running and don't want to really submit to Christ completely, which would mean submitting to the leaders which God has placed over you? I'm let the Holy Spirit do the work. If God is talking to your heart about membership, about baptism, about serving on one of our teams, go to our website. You could sign up and we'll call you. It just generates a phone call and we could talk about that, okay? Let's continue to worship as we sing. Father, thank you for Christ. Father, thank you for sending your son an atoning sacrifice for our sin. We are in debt to you, a debt that we could never pay, but Jesus paid that penalty and that price for us. 
He is the just and the justifier for those who have faith in Him. So, Father, as we sing now and worship Jesus, I pray, we pray that, Lord, you would get glory. Jesus would be seen and treasured and worshiped. And, Father, we will run away from sin and run to our Savior where forgiveness of sins can be had, Lord. And we pray, as a people, we will take being bound together, united together in the body of Christ seriously. And I just ask your spirit to do a work in our hearts for your glory and our joy. Father, thank you for our time. Help us to continue to worship as we talk about and sing about and sing to you about the gospel that binds our hearts and minds together. In Jesus' name, amen.